Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Today, we have Chase Parham here to recap the uh, end of the College World Series. Some we had a discussion about LSU winning it over Florida what it means that the team that spent the most money in NIL by far won the national title in the first year that NIL kind of became real for college baseball. The future of the sport, we talked some Ole Miss uh, MLB draft stuff to watch, what they've done in the transfer portal so far, and uh, a couple Rebels in the major leagues and who we were surprised that uh, made it and did not make it through the year. So good summer conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Buckle up. Before we get to that, though, wanted to remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Good friend of the pod basketball correspondent Bracken Ray has a rental property at Turnberry available for use throughout the year. Still got some football game weekends open. The Mercer, Vandy, and ULM ULM football weekends are still available for rent. You know how it gets during big weekends. It can be hard to find a place to, to find a place to stay at an affordable rate. Bracken Ray's got you covered. It's a it's a unit at Turnberry off Old Taylor Road. It will sleep eight comfortably. It's gated. It has a pool, a sauna, tennis courts. Great for games, orientation, rush, parents weekend, or if you're just stopping by, you want to make a night or two trip to Oxford. You don't feel like dealing with the hotel. Rent the Sip Oxford has you covered with this Turnberry unit. Go to rentthesipoxford.com to check availabilities. You can also email Bracken, B-R-A-C-K-E-N, at rentthesipoxford.com for any questions. Go ahead and book your stay now. If you go online and use the promo code RippyWrites, that'll get you 100 bucks off any stay that's a two-night minimum. So you're getting a steal of a deal already with this great place, great location. It's less than a mile from campus, a straight shot to Swayze Field, basically a straight shot to Vaught-Hemingway Stadium and a grove just behind that. You need to check it out today if you're looking for a place to stay in Oxford any time of the year, but it also on big game weekends when the space becomes a little more scarce. You need to check them out. RentTheSipOxford.com. You won't regret renting this Turnberry unit Trustworthy people, great place to stay. RentTheSipOxford.com. Go book it today and use that promo code and get 100 bucks off. Check them out. Again, RentTheSipOxford.com. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked at the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Football season will be here before you know it. Go ahead and sign up for Skybox Sports Picks, college football, and NFL picks. All you have to do is go to skyboxsportspicks.com. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can go season-long, all sports, sports-centric. I'd recommend just get the year-long total access package. It's going to save you money in the long run. They're the only way to profit in the long run. Don't lose money this football season by thinking you can just go off your own lanes in your own brain. Skybox Sports Picks goes by the math. They are the professionals. They hit and make money consistently every single year. If you're into sports wagering, just do yourself a favor. Go to skyboxsportspicks.com. Go find a picks package. Use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off. They'll email you the picks in a nice color-coded spreadsheet by unit, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were trying than you were you were before trying Skybox. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. You get free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, it's three six-ounce bacon-wrapped fillets for 20 bucks. Just go in and show Greg proof of subscription, and boom, that'll get you covered. 
Go find all your own favorites once you get set up there. It's prime grilling season. The weather's great outside. Enjoy the summer. Throw something awesome on the grill. LB's is the best butcher shop in the world. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here is Chase Parham on the end of the college baseball season and some MLB draft stuff. All right, we now welcome on my Rebel Grove cohort, Chase Parham. It is the uh, doldrums of summer as we record this on a Tuesday evening, a day after the College World Series. Probably talk a little bit about a lot of different things as we're uh, we were talking on the phone yesterday. We've officially entered that phase. And it's probably because we're mostly fortunate and it wasn't the case this year. With college baseball, it's not as long as we want to make it to be. It's just kind of, can you get to SEC media days and then can you string it along until camp heats up? But we are in that three-week period where you kind of look around from a content perspective and go, so now what? And uh, I would call that, not that we have extremely difficult jobs, That's this is the toughest time of the year, right? Because you want to continue to put out something semi-regularly, but there's literally nothing to talk about a lot of the time. Yeah, look, it, it it tests you in a lot of ways. I mean, I've been doing it for more than a decade, so you're you, you know it's going to work out. You know it's going to used to it, and I think it's it, it's a good thing in a way because you don't want to just slip through a product. You want to keep what you hope is a you know a high quality that's been going all year for your readers and your listeners and whatnot and and all that. But yeah, you're not drawing from any kind of game from any sport. I mean, that's what that was the first words out of my mouth last night when LSU clinched. And I guess it was technically before they clinched because I turned the game off in about the sixth inning when it was very clear who was going to win. And I had no interest in seeing LSU dogpile on the field last night there toward the end. So I, I moved on to something else. But that was it. That was that was all uh, professional, you know, outside of baseball, which we don't talk about day to day in any kind of manner that that has a lot of relevance like that. Um, until football season, until camp gets here in August, we're pretty much out out, out of date. And I, I tell you, I, I used to worry about it more than I do now, Ryan. I feel better with it, and this is probably one bit of a silver lining that came out of the pandemic. You baby, we did baby so question. You don't. It's yeah, not we as did bad. So You're prepared much. for anything. Yeah, you you did so much of this kind of stuff. Is it? You know, it taught you two things. It taught you number one, okay. Let's get back to the roots of just having conversations, uh, whatever they look like. I mean, you know, that's that's the deal is that it's what I love about podcasts. That's what I appreciate about all of our listeners is that, you know, we're, we're pretty like minded. We like the same things. You guys are clearly listening to us because you care about Ole Miss, you care about the SEC. You enjoy listening to us ramble on about whatever the hell it is off topic that we talk about every day when Brian goes through soccer corner, all those sort of different things. And I have to remind myself sometimes, hey, sports bar, sports bar. This all got started because we were just talking and having conversations like we're sitting at the bar together. So let's do that. You know, on Tuesday's Oxford Exxon podcast, we talked about mascots. We told some stories this morning. We did some stuff like that. And I think getting back to those things that everybody's sort of thinking the same things, dealing with the same things, that's from the pandemic to an extent. And then the other thing is when it comes to guests and look, I've got to get on it this week. I've got to get to work. I've, I've, I've slacked a little bit the last week on this, but it, it's a lot like asking out a girl at a bar is just ask because what's the worst that can happen? You know, you, you ask a guest on a podcast and you think, Hey, my little rinky dink, whatever is not going to pull this in. And maybe so, but then maybe they're just bored or they got a minute or they feel sorry for you or whatever the reason is. And they say, yes. I mean, you know, it's the, it, it's the life advice of all advice in every direction is if you ask somebody something and it's a no, you're just exactly where you were before you asked, you lost nothing versus a yes being a completely bigger thing. I mean, you know, and I, and I did, I, I had to get, I had to learn that through the, pandemic a little bit i mean there's is a lot of people my listeners know for i haven't caught up in a while but for a long time harlan coben was my favorite author and 
that one morning I was just sitting there and I went, I'm going to shoot him an email and see if he wants to come on the podcast. And in my head, I'm going, well, I mean, it's the pandemic. It's not like he's doing a damn thing. He's just hanging out too, sitting around. And sure enough, he goes, yeah, sure. Sounds good. What time? How long? I went, there you go. See, he said, yes. So that's how y'all got Heather McMahon too, right? Um, we had a couple mutual acquaintance, whatever, but yeah, I mean, definitely she was not doing anything and just hanging out and was susceptible to that type of, uh, thing. I mean, yeah, we, we had a, there was like a, a week and a half period there at one point where it was like Harlan Coben, Heather McMahon, Chris Solomon from No Laying Up and, um, um, uh, Josh Kelly, who's married to, uh, Catherine Heigl. Former That's pretty big gets there. Yeah, we, we, we went through a little run there for like a week where it was just, yes, 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 yes. And I was like, hey, all right, we're we're, we're, we're going here. It prepares you for, like that COVID thing, that was kind of what I was going to ask you next. Like that kind of prepared you for anything. Like if, if you can make it through that, you can string together content. And in a way, kind of you look back and you appreciate it. And it's like, all right, at least it's not that. At least we don't know when this is going to end. And then the other piece of it too, and we'll get to the College World Series in a second, you mentioned you and Neil talking mascots and telling stories and stuff. Another weird part about like the job that you guys still work in full time and y'all have been around much longer than me in the like five, six years I did it during school and like full time after that, you have some pretty interesting stories that you maybe didn't think of in the moment. And you guys have a breadth of them that I don't have because you did it for a decade. But even me working in five years, like I start talking to people about stuff sometimes and I'm like, telling the story of Rich Rod just cussing through the walls at Auburn in 2019. And I'm asking Richard Cross, who's he yelling at? And he's like, nobody. And I'm like, seriously, dude, I'm not going to tell anyone. Tell me. He goes, no one. He's just walking around yelling. Stuff like that that just accumulates through the years. Y'all probably have kind of a treasure trove of that that might be worth writing about one day when you get into your 60s and you're close to retirement. Just like, let me put 15 stories on paper and see how crazy they sound. It's it's that. And also what it is, is and I, and I don't mean this in a way that I try to be disconnected. I don't mean this in a way that I don't feel the same ways that fans are when they're seeing something. But I think we're around the players and coaches so much that we get desensitized to it that sometimes yes. I don't think something is an interesting story in the moment. And when you step back, you go, hey, they'd really like to hear that. Whatever that is, the peek behind the curtain, the the backstory to this or that. I have to kind of catch myself sometimes and remind myself. No, that's interesting. That's that that's something that 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 matters. That's something they would really enjoy, or I should tell. And you know, I've started. I've I've gotten better because for years and years and years, we we sort of made the Oxford Exxon podcast joke that, hey, this is an organic thing. We just hit the record button. We don't do a ton of prep. And I realized that that's kind of stupid. Um, so I'm still not drawing out outlines, but every day I've got. I've got three columns. I've got a, hey, we got to make sure we hit this. A, hey, we probably need to hit this. And then a, hey, there's a segment left and I'm out of stuff and let's go to that just in case. So I, I at least feel a little more prepared, um, trying to mix in a lot of some anecdotes, if I think of them, some personal stuff, try to figure out what that line is. Because, you know, that's the other thing for the pandemic and not to get too deep. And I know we're talking baseball for a majority of the show today, but we all were dealing with our own stuff during the pandemic, worrying about our own different things. And you know, a lot of our balance that Neil and I dealt with, and I think he, I think he handled it better than I did at times, and I think we disagreed at times, and well, that's cool, no big deal, um, was what? how much of that do you talk about? Because it's two things that go up against each other. As a podcast host, I want to be relatable, let people know who I am, I want let people to understand my personality, but then I also want to, if they're having a bad day or if they're dealing with some stuff, I want to be able to entertain and be an escape for that. So what is the balance between those two things? How do you go, hey, I'm 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 dealing with something, I'm whatever, and this is real, and let's talk about the real stuff. But then also, 
hey, if you had a crappy day, you don't need me telling you all my crap. I, I need you. To, I need to be picking you up and, and entertaining you and, and telling jokes and being the jester and giving you something to escape from for whatever that period of time is. And I think I think a podcast trains you for that. Um, maybe even in ways that radio does it because the breaks are so different. In a podcast, you're you're reading your own breaks. You're full go. I mean, there's not a lot of time to sit and stop and outline. You're just kind of talking. Whereas radio's got those really hard commercial breaks. I mean, you've done both here recently. I, I think the podcast gives you a lot more ability to figure out, hey, this is the tone. This is the tenure. This is what I'm trying to do today when I'm talking. Yeah, you're exactly right. And like radio, you're confined to, you know, where people are listening from. They're listening in the car. You know, some people do the home radio thing, you know, a little old school crowd maybe flips a radio on nowadays. Like, it's crazy, like, where people listen from. I mean, I had a guy walk up to me at a golf tournament one time and said he listened during his vasectomy. And I was like, I probably didn't need to know all that. But then there's, like, a surprising amount of people that are like, I listen to you guys when I go to sleep. And I'm like, man, what a sad life. The last thing you hear before you go to sleep is this dipshit on a podcast for three days a week. But it's just funny how all of that happens and you forget that. And podcast allows that freedom that you're talking about that the hard break terrestrial radio doesn't allow. We, we, the the one where I had no comment and had no idea how to how to how to how to even respond or relay anything is we were doing a live show in Jackson. We used to do those at the Westin all the time. Yeah, and we were down there and we're doing like the meet and greets or whatever. And this this woman who I had no idea who she was, I had not she was not one of the people we saw often or whatnot. And she walked up and was like, "Hey, just really want to appreciate it. I listen to y'all while I'm in the bath every night." <laughs> and I was like, "I thank you. Thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm a little creeped out right now, and I'm a little like." I guess flattered. I don't know. Like she's like, Oh yeah. She's like, I'll set up the iPad and watch the stream. And I'm like, I'm a little freaked out right now. I'll be honest. I'm just a little, little freaked out, but thank you. Appreciate that. Um, it's all, yeah, it's all the good. classic line of, you know, picture everyone in your underwear when you get nervous, just picture the people listening when they're in the tub, you know, it's getting clean for the evening. So it's great. And I always appreciate like the feedback. There's no great transition out of naked women in a bathtub listening to this pod, but you know, as we kind of go, into whatever we're going to discuss today, the college world series um, this year. It's crazy. You know, a year ago today, you were probably driving back with the frantic Ben Garrett from Omaha, probably either getting tickets or smashing into cars on the way home. Didn't y'all do a podcast while driving? That didn't seem safe. We did a podcast when we were driving. Um, we were getting home or I, actually I dropped him off in Memphis. I was getting home about right now. We're, we're recording this around six o'clock uh, on, uh, on Tuesday night. And that's, that's about what I pulled in the driveway was, was six. Uh, we did, we, we set the microphone up. Actually, this microphone you're staring at right here I've on the console. We did a midweek game in Memphis and did a recap on the way back one time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I set the, I set it up, I put it, plugged it into my computer. And the only thing that we scared the crap out of people was that, uh, we dropped it at one point we're driving down the road and he like slams on the brakes and the the microphone goes into the floor and I was like, I should probably cut that, but I'm going to leave it in. And I think at least 40% of the listeners thought we died because all you heard was this smack with the, with the microphone headed into the floor. But he, uh, he, he was in rare form that, that, that morning, pretty, uh, pretty juiced up. And, and, you know, it really, it's, it's crazy. It's been a year. I was kind of thinking about it yesterday and everything since then. And that week and the NIL, I mean, Neil asked me this morning, on the show, we were talking about NIL and baseball and portal and all that kind of stuff. And he said, you, he, I guess his comment was, you don't like it or you're frustrated or something like that. And didn't mean in a bad way, but I think he's right. I think in some ways, even Ole Miss's team last year, I kind of missed that era already. I, I think you, even though it's a year into it, it's, it's why I was pulling against LSU. I mean, all people did the, 
hey, it's an Ole Miss person doing it. It, it really had nothing to do with that. I've pulled for LSU in, in baseball series before, or even, even maybe against Florida in 17 when Florida won. It was more that I just – and I said that this morning. I just don't want to see the team that spent the most money win. That's all. Whoever the team was that spent the most money, I just don't really want to see them win. Um, so I – I have a lot of fond memories from last year, from from Omaha, from that entire experience. I mean, just so many things that we could – I mean, I could – all jokes aside, because I know I did write the book. But, I mean, I could almost write a book just on those three weeks of what I saw and experienced and whatnot during the course of that that, that College World Series and that Super Regional run and all those things. Um, it, it it's It's one of those deals, though, where it almost kind of feels even more pure now, if that makes sense. I know it's probably stupid and that may be a little Pollyanna, but just given sort of where the sport is today and what's going on, I don't know. There was a certain – it definitely wasn't innocence. That's stringing the violin way too much. But there was just something about the way all that went down last year that was, uh, was, 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 pretty, was pretty interesting. Well, that to me was the theme of this College World Series. You know, you had Florida, who they're not some up-and-coming program that's just slumming it with a bunch <laughs> of guys you never heard of by any stretch. It was crazy. My future father-in-law is a huge LSU fan, and we were talking about the series and stuff. And I was like, there's probably half of the top 10 in the next two MLB drafts on the field right now. And it's just kind of crazy to think about. So it's not like David versus Goliath. But to your point, I thought the theme of the College World Series was kind of what is college baseball in this NIL era, because you're exactly right. The team that spent the most money and from every account that I've heard by far in a way, the most money, I mean, you throw out, I mean, I've heard over a million, whatever people hear about what they spent for the roster they assembled this year. Well, the first real year of that, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, it was so new and where baseball falls on the calendar. It was kind of a thing last year, but I feel like it didn't get really heightened until last offseason when they got Paul Skeens and they got Tommy Tanks and guys like that. Well, now you look up a year later after that season's second place and the team that spent by far the most money won. Now, did they cruise through the whole thing? Was it without scares? Was the path easy? Was it the 2018 Golden State Warriors when the, after they get Kevin Durant or 2017 and you're just like, why? how is this fair? No, but it is kind of telling in some ways and maybe it's just a little bit of, I don't even know the right way to describe it, but like good fortune and it just happened and maybe it's not all for a reason, but it is very interesting in this first real year of NIL for college baseball, the team that spent the most one. Now, if you told me Wake Forest beats LSU that night in that nothing, nothing game and then cruises through Florida, we're probably not having this conversation. And Oral Roberts made the college world series and the change, the whole landscape didn't change. Oh, sure. There, there are something to the fact that sure. the team that spent the most one, and I don't know what, that means for college baseball, but I lean in the camp with you is I don't really love it. And that doesn't mean I'm anti guys getting paid. I just don't love the idea of that. What you had in the final was the team that spent the most money in the portal against the team who spent the most money to keep its roster intact. It's a great way to put Florida it. last off season spent the most to make sure guys didn't go pro to keep guys on their roster to not transfer I mean, Brandon Sprout didn't stay with Florida because he just really likes those white uniforms with Florida script across the front of them. He got paid a lot in NIL. It's where I've talked about Ole Miss's mistake in NIL last year was not paying Nick Pogue to show up to campus and let him sign a minor league contract and not, and not be on your roster instead. That was their biggest failure um, from, from that standpoint. Uh, so, look, LSU, because this is – you have to be balanced. They also had a crap ton of homegrown guys that they grew that roster out. And they went and got three studs and Thatcher Hurd and Tommy White and Paul Skeens. But Trey Morgan's homegrown. Dylan Gruz is homegrown. I mean, Gavin DeGaw's been there since the Reagan administration. I mean, there are 
all those dudes who were in that Below lineup seven. and had lost a lot of games. Yeah, I mean, they had dudes that were been around that, that that program. You know, Christian Little was a complete bust from a portal guy out of Vanderbilt. I mean, I saw him cheering yesterday, but I hadn't seen him on a mound in two months. Um, so, yes, I, I agree with you. It, But let's, let's look at Wake Forest. Wake Forest is a good example. TCU is probably the best example of the middle that does a little bit of everything that is more similar to an Ole Miss last year or the way we're used to this thing operating. But Wake Forest had one heck of a college baseball team. They had an old team that could really pitch, could really hit, but they built to that. They were upperclassmen. They were guys who'd been around for a while. They had developed guys. It's a program that five, two of the last five years, they've had losing records overall. You can't do it year over year over year that way. And then you look up today and their best two offensive players are both in the portal and God knows where they're going, but probably somewhere in the SEC. So it's it, it's that deal where not only are you having a hard time annually putting that type of product together, you're also having a hard time keeping your dudes once you do it. That, this is what I like about it. It's just so hard to to know the players, to keep the rosters intact. It's what it's why it's college sports in general. And I don't want I don't want to make this a big negative podcast, but it's why I think in some ways the roots are poison, and you see where it's uh, where it's headed. You know, and look, Ole Miss is in these waters. They're one of them, but. They got a long way to go right now, and it's just national champions all over the place. I mean, I saw the SEC graphic earlier, and if Arkansas had caught a foul ball in that 2018 College World Series, so if they caught one foul ball, this would be six straight SEC national champions and all six being different teams with no repeats. Wow. And so in going all the way back to that, because 17, you had LSU, Florida. You had Florida beating LSU. So you would have Florida in 17, Arkansas in 18, Vanderbilt in 19, nothing in 20, State in 21, Ole Miss in 22, LSU in 23. And the only one before that that wouldn't have been non-SEC, is that 2016, you, uh, 2016 Virginia? 2015 Virginia, they beat Vanderbilt in the Coastal. final. 2016 was Coastal over Arizona, maybe. Yeah, you're exactly right. PCU about that. or Arizona, I don't remember which one. And you mentioned the Florida piece of it too about them spending the most to keep their roster intact. Well, guess what they also did? They plucked Hurston Waldrop from mm-hmm. Southern Miss for a, presumably a decent amount of NIL money. It's honestly a credit to Southern Miss to lose a guy like that and still get as close to Omaha as they did. And it's 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 interesting because you I think Florida State or excuse me Wake Forest is an interesting example of that because if this does continue trending in the direction that we think we're trending that type of team seems like a bit of a bygone era right I mean Colin if I told you and I watch a decent bit of college baseball I'd be lying over under twenty innings that I watched of Wake Forest pre postseason I'd probably under just don't watch a ton of ACC baseball Colin was pretty early on them and I watched them in the regional and was like. Holy cow, this is an SEC team just playing on the East Coast. They're They're built exactly like an SEC team. And I just think the path to doing that and maintaining it in this NIL era seems immensely harder. Like, will we see another Wake Forest type team next year? Because honestly, honest to God, if there's no Paul Skeens on this earth, Wake Forest probably is the national champions today. You know, not to discount Florida, they're pretty damn good too, but they were so, so, so good. And that game could have gone the other way with one swing of the bat. But building a team like that, and not only building it, but maintaining it for a two, three-year run, that seems that like it's going to be infinitely harder in this new era in which we now live. It's going to be infinitely harder. It will be, and this is this is in the weeds a little bit. 
it will be easiest for a team like TCU or maybe – I don't know if Wake's the best example, but somebody in the ACC – because your margin during the year is less to still have a high seed. I think that Big 12 or that ACC team, that even if they fall off a little bit, they're not as good as Wake, well, okay, but they get a regional at home and they win that. You know what I mean? You can kind of get to go 45 or 50 in. and something. The problem you're getting to in the SEC right now is that if you're middle of the road, well, you're a damn three seed. Even if you've won a lot of games and are, are really, really good, and now you'll be one MFR of a three seed on somebody's field down the road, but you're still not playing at home. Your road is still harder. I mean, I, I think in some ways that's what's happening too. Is you're just these these mid tier SEC teams are just beating the crap out of one another, and you don't know what that's going to look like, and it's only going to get more. I mean, Georgia ended up with a big portal guy today. Um, Florida gets the Shelton kid out of Alabama. I mean, it's just on and on and on and on. And, you know, you you look up, and if you're not one of the top five, six, seven portal teams in the country, you're falling behind. It's Tennessee's the team you're referring to, like that profile team where the middle class beats the hell out of each other. And it's like, how is this team a two seed in someone else's regional? But, man, are they – I mean, they got out of it right there. They, I don't. Was it Clemson? Were they in Clemson's regional? They were in Clemson. They won that crazy game against Clemson on that Saturday night. Talk about a terrible, terrible draw. It's like really, we got to deal with this, and it's it's interesting. But at the same, like on the other, like putting the shoe on the other foot, and not that there's a reason for all of this, and it has to be one way or another. This was also an incredible College World Series. The games were awesome, and maybe that just happens every few years. But I mean, you had a decent mix of teams. Right. It wasn't overly SEC heavy top to bottom. Granted, SEC got their normal share in there, but like Oral Roberts was a damn good baseball team that could have beaten anyone in that on that field on a given day. And then you look at the first weekend of games and every game outside of like one was incredible. Does that indicative of the era we're leaving or going to? No, probably not. It probably just happened that way. But it's weird that we talk about how uh, now the team that spends the most money is going to win this sucker. But generally, it's sort of kind of been that way to other degrees, whether it's the lottery scholarships or his overall program investment. But it's just a weird juxtaposition that you got an incredibly awesome College World Series where I don't think you could have said at any point, this team's winning it, no doubt, because LSU lost hmm. right their, their second game. That just kind of goes like a little bit flies in the face of like, God, oh, just the rich are going to get richer because this was an awesome College World Series made up with teams of, you know, top, middle and bottom class. What's going to help is a couple things. Well, it was two things. Look, eight teams going to Omaha. So if four teams are spending more than everybody else and those four go, there's still four more spots. Yep. Um, I mean, there is that. I mean, you know, somebody didn't – you weren't knocking LSU off your off their perch, but you still could be in Omaha with LSU Um, in, in a way. And Oral Roberts, look, there they went through Vanderbilt. They got through that regional, obviously. I mean, look, Vanderbilt doesn't have some crazy NIL, but let's not act like they're the sisters of the poor either. Um, They're in, they're in Nashville – I still don't think Tim Corbin's coaching them in two or three years, though, as his advantages keep falling and falling and falling. But he's been um, on that for a while. Does he retire I, or go somewhere else? I don't know. I'm just sticking on it that he's not going to be that guy that's going to have every advantage in the world and suddenly have to come back down the pack and just be one of those dudes. He does just not strike me in that way whatsoever. He just doesn't. I could be wrong. Um, but what I was going to say is, as pitching gets weirder in the country, and I mean that from the standpoint of we're almost getting to the point of no aces. You know, Paul Skeens was the outlier. I mean, I've given this stat a thousand times. He was the only pitcher in the SEC who averaged six innings per start this season. He was it. There was only four pitchers in the SEC that averaged five innings per start this season. That's and it. he was quite literally a big leaguer pitching in college baseball. He was, yeah. Very so, high. I mean, he's he's the anomaly. Outside of him, you know, Sproke was good. Uh, you know, guys at Vanderbilt were good. There was good arms. 
But look what Arkansas did. They won the league. They tied Florida for the championship, throwing Hagen Smith, who's a reliever, as their as their Friday night guy. Um, so my point being, this is going to be about pitching depth. This is going to be about how many arms teams have. And this is going to be about dynamic offenses. This move moves forward. And that's a different style of baseball, even if several teams are much more talented than the rest of them, versus, hey, I've just got three studs on the mound, and we're going to go blow you out for seven innings, eight innings, seven innings over the course of a weekend. So – there is some parity in that in a way, but it's just going to look completely different. It, it is about absolutely compiling as many arms as possible to get as many outs as possible, and you hope you have 27 at the end of the weekend. And LSU is a good example of that because guess what happened? They got to a game three, and they did not pitch Paul Skeens. And I want to get into mm-hmm. a second like why that was the case and why you thought it was the case because someone gave me an interesting theory. But you're right, it's depth. And when LSU struggled, it's because a lot of those guys were on the shelf. The kid that they had throw – in the first game against Wake Forest, I for, I'm forgetting his name, but he was hurt, if I'm not mistaken, for part of the year, and then they get him back. And this whole thing of LSU's not very good behind schemes, well, once they started getting healthy and getting guys back contributing again, they were actually just kind of a machine, even past schemes. They, their postseason numbers, I read something Brody Miller wrote a couple of days ago about how they pitched in the postseason versus the regular season behind schemes. They were just a dominant pitching staff, but they weren't that way in the regular season because of injuries. And I think that underscores your point pretty well, because, hell, they got to a game three and didn't pitch Skeens. And, like, let's be honest. If Ole Miss had gone to a game three against Oklahoma last year, who's getting the ball? There was no other options, right? It's still in Delusia. Yeah. He's getting he the baseball. Started. Right. Because they didn't have that depth. And now as we move into kind of whatever this current version of SEC baseball is, you know, Ole Miss, I'm not going to say Ole Miss couldn't have done what they did in 2022 because I don't think that's true. We just watched it with our own eyes. That becomes a lot harder when you don't have those kind of options. It is a much easier path when you just have a bunch of dudes who can get outs. Ole Miss won in a very old school way. It's not taking any credit away from them, but it was completely different. They they won 10 postseason games, and D- Dylan DeLucia and Hunter Elliott started eight of those 10 games. That's They crazy. got an all-world performance from Jack Doherty in one of them when he retired the first 15 in a row against Oklahoma in the national championship game one. And then they scored 22 runs in the other one when they beat Arizona in the regional final. Those were the 10 wins. So you had two – look, you look, but to their credit, they couldn't lose games and they didn't. Ole Miss didn't lose a game that Elliott and Delucia pitched. And that was their path. Right, because if you get to a game three against Southern or Arizona pushes it to a winner-take-all or you get to a game three against Oklahoma – you're, I mean, the the odds drastically change. Do they maybe if, if the first two scenarios happen, do they even get to them all? I would wager at a certain point, whether it's in the regional or the super regional, no. So you're exactly right. Like depth plays a gigantic role. What did you make of Skeens not pitching last night? Because I feel like in some ways we were kind of all of the old school thinking because I was like, there's no way this dude's not getting the ball. It's going to happen. And then it didn't happen. And I was shocked by it. And we were eating dinner last night with MC's family and one of the one of her sister's boyfriends mentioned was like, you got to figure that's a family or an agent thing, right? Either the family was like no shot or the agent was like, don't do it. Because I just find it very hard to believe a guy like that was just like, I don't have it. I don't want the baseball. That's rare in this day and age, really just ever for a guy like that, not to take the baseball. What do you think went into that? Just your guess. I think they were, I think he was, I think he was eligible to pitch. I think he was available to throw last night if needed. I think their kind of their bargaining in the middle ground was, Look, you need 27 outs, so when he throws, doesn't really matter. Let's do two things. Let's use him only if necessary, so if the game is close or we need outs in the middle innings or the late innings. And then two, make it where you get the most out of these pitches because he probably doesn't have 80, probably doesn't have 70. Hell, he might not have 50. 
So if you're only going to get 40 pitches, let's make sure it's right there in that sweet spot where you need a strikeout and then an extra inning or something that's incredibly high leverage. I think they were just waiting. Um, Because, you know, they Johnson said in the mid-game interview with Kyle Peterson and those guys that he probably would pitch at some point. That's when the game was still relatively close. I think it was 6-2 at the time. And then they put a towel up over the bullpen cam so nobody could see when anybody was headed down there or whatever they were doing. Oh, what a vet move. And, and, and covered that up. So I do think he was eligible to throw. They were just being careful with it. The reason that I thought they might start him was more of if a guy's on short rest, I want to make sure he feels as good as possible. So I want to give him all the time in the world to stretch and warm up and really test everything and feel good instead of, hey, there's two guys on, there's one out, get Paul up, go, 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 go. And then he's rushing something or not being 100%, especially for a guy who – had not had a relief appearance since 2021. I mean, he was a starter, you know, Air Force, LSU. So that part surprised me. But as far as them waiting and just making sure he was needed and not burning up pitches when, you know, the game either way would have been out of hand, I I, I get it. It was probably a little more responsible. I was just more thinking about his prep time than, than limiting his throws. That's why I was surprised he didn't start because you're going to bring him in in a role that he hasn't done in multiple years. And you're also going to put, as you put it, a pretty finite amount of time on the time he has to get ready. And so once he didn't start, I was like, okay, this has a real chance to kind of get weird. But at the same time, like if when Florida goes up to nothing and that pitcher who held it together, credit, I've already forgotten his name, who started the game. I mean, in that first inning, it looked like there was a moment where he was about to literally just pee down his leg in front of this gigantic audience. And so if Florida scores two or Florida scores more than the two or just say they get the two and LSU goes three up, three down the top of the second, that sucker's probably running out to the bullpen pretty quick, right? Because it did not look great at first, but that six run bottom of the second inning probably changed the calculus of everything they were going to do from an entire staff standpoint, but particularly Skeens. Yeah, if they're down four nothing in the third, I think you would have to bring him in and go try to get me nine outs and at least extend this thing and keep the offense getting a chance to win it. Because I mean, at that point, you are definitely, especially what happened the day before, you're on the verge of Florida running you out of the building and it not mattering. And then you look like the idiot who had skeins available and you just didn't pitch him. Right. It was rapidly and, approaching that point. I remember sitting there thinking that in the second inning. I'm like, man, they're really going to regret this. And then the offense just kind of took it out of their hands against a pretty good pitcher for Florida. That kid was bumping 96 in the bottom of the first inning. And it's like, can Ole Miss get one of those dudes? He'd be probably on Fridays, but their fifth guy was 96 from the left side and was pretty damn good breaking ball as well. Granted, it didn't work out for him. He forgot how to throw strikes, but it's crazy when we speak to the depth. Florida's at game three as well. And I know they could align their pitching a little bit better, but the kid they brought out again, throws 96 from the left side with a hammer of a breaking ball. What a luxury. He's the best two-way player in the country, Caglia Nunn. I, 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 I love him to win the Golden Spikes next year. He's going to put up huge numbers. He's going to be a Friday or Saturday arm for them, and then he's also going to hit 25 bombs or something. So, yeah, he's put put all your stock on, on Caglia Nunn for next year. He's the number one pick, don't you think? I would think, especially when we're in this Otani world right now where everybody's kind of wondering if that's a thing. You're going to give him yeah. a chance. Yeah, and I thought he had an interesting answer of like, I'm just going to keep doing it until an organization tells me not to. And I'm like, in this day and age, why would they tell you not to? Just keep it rolling out there. I mean, 96, 96. Then again, he's a little bit of a unicorn in that sense. So the result of the biggest spender winning, again, at the end of the day, I was like, okay, this all makes sense. It would have made slightly less sense if Florida won. But at the same time, it was still a pretty damn difficult road for LSU. I mean, yeah, it two things again they had to find ways to win without paul skeens on the mound which they had struggled to do in some capacity all year 
And they did that. Credit to them. They got hot. They got healthy, as you said. They found the right combinations. They got a ton out of Thatcher Hurd. They got stuff out of Riley Cooper. They put stuff together. There's no doubt. And then there's also a pressure to being the number one team in the country. And the only expectation and the only way you had a successful season is if you win the national championship. They're the only team that had that be the case on this year. So credit to them as well. That's a, that's, that is a positive for Jay Johnson, keeping those guys together, keeping the main thing, the main thing where you have no margin for error whatsoever. Um, but no, look, they could have lost to Wake. They could have lost to Florida. And are we having a different conversation? I mean, maybe a little bit, but it still doesn't change the calculus moving forward. Is that you have several teams who are just outspending everybody else, but they're also developing their own guys better. That's what I was talking to Neil about earlier in the week, and I'm kind of writing about a little bit in the morning for tomorrow, some content, is the only way this works if you don't need 10 portal guys, because you can't find 10 portal guys. A, 10 who are going to excel in the SEC, and then – also 10 who you can afford and pay because if you have $2 million, well, if I have $2 million to pay four dudes, that's a totally different deal. If I have $2 million to pay nine guys. Yep. Salary cap's different. What I need is different. So you've got to develop your homegrown talent. You've got to develop the pitchers on staff. You've got to get better in all those ways. And it's why, you know, switching over to Ole Miss for a second, I found it a little interesting what they've done so far. Um, I still want to see how they finish. It's an incomplete. You cannot grade Ole Miss's portal class on June 27th. The portal does not close for another 17 days. So you cannot grade them in any way yet. But what they've done so far is somewhat interesting to me. And then number two, the key to the season is that. But it's also how good is JT Quinn? How good is Sam DeCoyan? How good is Grayson Sonia? How good is Judge the other day? And it's a great point. Yeah. How good is Will Furness? I mean, it's all those things of what those guys look like and what they look like will dictate things. So I, I just think in some ways we get a look. I'm not discounting the portal. The portal is incredibly important, but we also can't forget that the roster is equally important and those guys have to get better and they got to get better fast. And it's not, it's unlike football in the sense where what you outlined is we've already seen it play out in football. It's like, you can't just go all portal heavy and expect it to work out every year. You're still seeing the teams that recruit the best with high school talent you know, continue to end up in the college football playoff and in the mix. But there's also another piece of this with college baseball that's unique to football. You mentioned like the teams that spend the most wind up in Omaha. Okay, if that's four teams, there's still four more spots. The I don't think there will ever be like a college football lack of parity that comes with the NIL era in college baseball because there's still so few programs that would be willing to even get in that stratosphere or have, I say willing, have the ability to do that, right? LSU is kind of its own breed, but to just say you cut LSU's NIL budget in half, how many other programs are going to beat that? Can't you count them on one hand? Like we're not losing parity in this sport because there's just sheer, sheer few number of programs that care about it enough, invested enough. Because again, at the end of the day, it is still college baseball to actually raise their game to that level. You know what I mean? It's also watching what happens in the other sports. It's the thing I keep coming back to is that every dollar that goes to baseball is a dollar that doesn't go to football, that doesn't go to men's basketball, that doesn't go to women's basketball, wherever you're putting an IL. And what you're going to see is some swings, too, simply in sports at specific schools and how the percentages change as some teams get better, some teams get worse, as, as fans start earmarking more money this direction or this direction versus the general fund. I mean, you know, Ole Miss is a – we'll just take Ole Miss for the heck of the thing. Again, I'm not predicting anything. I'm just getting the thing out there. Let Chris Beard really go win in this in this first yep. year. Let him make the NCAA tournament. Let him get everybody excited. Let the pavilion be packed to let people go, hey, well, you know, at Texas Tech in year two, even with the Elite Eight and all that kind of stuff. Well, 
it's common sense that more people are going to earmark more money to basketball at that point than they would have in the past just put in the general fund or sent to baseball or football or anything else. The sports and the coaches are absolutely competing with one another to stay nationally relevant at this point. Yeah, it's going to make the whole congratulatory tweet from other coaches on other on the campus of whatever school just won its championship even more cheesy and probably not as true as it was in the past. And Beard's a good example because you talk about a guy that if you heard about any NIL issues ever since Beard got hired, that man kind of went and wait, raised his own funds. They went and landed he a is- bunch of kids that didn't come here for free. And that the profile of the coach you type, the type of coach you hire changes to some degree. Because if it's a place with no resources, well, what if this guy who has a track record like Beard, he's a little bit of a unique case, comes in and starts raising money before he's seen any success? That's already getting the ball rolling in what's eventually going to snowball to what you're talking about. When the success does come, those resources will change. Like where those resources get placed within an athletic department will change. Oh, look, he's come in. I mean, let's just be honest. He's come in. He's raised his own NIL. He's taught the people. He's been good in the community. He showed up at some fundraiser stuff the Grove Collective's done. He's been seen out around town, uh, you know, in, in, in a positive way. I don't mean that in some, like, weird way. He He's Not done a lot funkies. of things. Yeah, he's done a lot of things correctly. I mean, my first real conversation with him was at Funkies. I mean, like, that's that, that that's that, that's what sort of happened over the course of this. But that plays into what you're talking about because here's the deal. Especially at smaller schools, and I'm – when I say smaller schools, I mean schools in smaller towns. So, I mean, even yeah. Athens would count, Oxford, Auburn, whatever – well, Chris Beard is coming in as a as a winner. He's somebody who has been in a national championship game at Texas Tech. He has a history of picking up programs that don't have a ton of history behind them, like what he did at Tech. He's been in two Elite Eights. He had Texas rolling when he got fired there. He's been number one in the country. He signed recruiting classes different ways. I mean, look, the, the track record and body of work is, in, is unmistakable. Well, what happens, and this is logic to me, is if he's out and he's talking to people and he's raising his NIL and he's doing all these things, well, that puts pressure on every other head coach to do it too because it's like, hold on a minute. If Beard is willing to do that and that's what he does and that's the way that works, well then, I mean, isn't it a fair to talk about Mike or Kiffin or Yo or whomever and go, hey, if this cat's willing to do it, why aren't y'all doing it? And again, I'm not saying they aren't. I'm not criticizing their NIL efforts. I'm just saying doing. from a – yeah, I'm saying from a front-facing way, what he has done has absolutely worked. And I think that I think that counts for something. I think it does change the expectation on everybody else. So you mentioned Ole Miss earlier, and you think what they've done in the portal is interesting so far, and that's kind of what I wanted to get to next. What do you mean by interesting? I'll just kick it to you as the, as we like, paint a picture of what they've done so far and why it fascinates you, because it was interesting. Before they got the kid from Duke, I was talking to Colin the other day. I would have graded what they've done very early in the portal. It's impossible to grade, but if we were just talking at a bar and was like, what do you think so far? I'd say C minus or C plus, B minus. To me, that – brings it to B plus range so far. They're on the right track. Again, still not com- like still complete. But again, just what do you make of what they've done so far? They're missing the obvious heavy hitter. Um, and when I say heavy hitter, I mean arm or bad. Just the yeah. guy who has been in at this school and just torn it up and whatever. I mean, you're talking the Cody Shelton kid at Alabama or even maybe the kid at Wichita this two-way kid, even though that's an American transition that I have some questions about. But it's two things. They haven't hit the big name outside of Fisher, if you want to count that. It, that That's fringe big name. I'll, I'll give you credit if you really want to make that argument, and if you want to not go, hey, he's the head of the B list, I'll make that argument too. I'll, either way you want to go is fine. He had immediate success at the Power 5 level as a freshman. Yeah, and a thousand, a thousand OPS as a freshman in the that'll ACC. Play. That'll play. Yeah, I'm good. So it counts. I mean, we'll, so we'll call him an A-lister. But – 
you know what I mean? Like the their angst is there somewhat on it's not, hey, they went out and got dude and they just overspin and they got this cat or they didn't go sign, you know, Billy Amick who came out of Clemson and he's probably going to Florida too or whatever. Like they didn't go do those things. Um, I'll put you on the spot real quick while we're on topic. Is Chase Burns, is that a possibility? Is that I think something? Chase Burns is going to LSU. Man. Chase Burns turned down $500,000 to stay at Tennessee. So I think only one school can swim in those waters. I didn't know. For a that guy who's better off as a reliever. Yes. But how so we saw everyone's favorite Twitter personality, Wes Rucker. Um, I did very I was very interested in his uh, I believe he had a take last night. I got it sent to me about five different people that Chase Burns doesn't need Tennessee because he's mad because he got into the bullpen. But Tennessee also doesn't need Chase Burns. They don't need first round picks. They're they're above yes. that. What a take. Um, <laughs> I didn't know the $500,000 anecdote, but that honestly makes this question more interesting. How much of that do you think was sheer money and how much of it was the fact that the Wes Rucker framing of it, that he's upset that he was moved to the bullpen and that there was a fractured relationship there? There's no doubt that he wants to be a starting pitcher and he's going somewhere where they believe they will give him an opportunity to do that. If you can make six six $650,000 while you're doing it, bully for you and – and Joey Baton Rouge or wherever you end up. But LSU does seem to be the prohibitive favorite from people I've talked to in the industry to this point. Um, so, no, I don't think Burns is a, is a candidate. There aren't a lot of those guys is where I was going. Um, and nobody likes this answer, and I get yelled at when I make it. But there haven't been a ton of just complete A-listers jump into the portal to this point. It's not like last year even. Teams are paying their top players to stay. You know, in a normal year, like Charlie Condon, I get he's got Georgia ties and his family, but that's somebody who's in the portal. His coach leaves, and he would be making – he would be setting the market in the transfer portal if the Georgia outfielder was available. Instead, he didn't. He stayed. So, it's a different portal deal. I don't think it's as talent-heavy as people thought it was going to be. And what Ole Miss is doing is they're trusting their evaluations. Um, they're finding – something about everybody's game they really like now is that smart is that not smart i don't know again i'm not i'm not i'm not doing the pollyanna thing i'm not propping them up and saying this is perfect because frankly i think i would overspend on a stud just to know i had a stud um and that feel in, in the waters else. that we just talked about that probably yeah, i think i just got to pay for one of those dudes maybe they think fisher is that dude great okay fine um fisher great get beat out lsu for him uh which is hard to do these days, as you're aware of. They beat out LSU for him. He can play third base. If Lejay wants to stay, that moves Lejay to second base, where he's probably more comfortable. Cool. Trayson Hughes, I think, is going to hit. We've got some good uh, feedback of SoCon guys moving to the SEC and being able to play offensively, and that, and that working out okay. Um, you know, Colton Ledbetter, obviously, Sonny DeSachera, if you want to play that game, even though that's an outlier to some extent. Um I like Trayson Hughes a lot. I think that was a really good get. I think it's somebody who had a lot of other offers, um, had a ton of offers. He got offered by Vanderbilt, Florida, Oklahoma State. So they're getting guys other teams wanted. They just haven't gotten this big name. But it's on the pitching staff so far that I find fascinating or the most interesting. They've picked up so far two. Um, they've picked up uh, Kyler Carmack from Arkansas State and then uh, Colton Spencer here recently from Southeastern Louisiana in the last 24 hours. And they are looking for people who they believe can throw strikes with some work, some development, and then have a pitch or something about their game that is above average at the SEC level. 
both those guys coming from smaller places. Uh, Sunbelt, obviously, Southland Conference for those two arms. But Kyler Carmack's got one of the best changeups in the, in the country. Um, he's been featured on Pitching, Pitching Ninja. People are talking about it, the spin rates. It is a wiffle ball changeup that kind of reminds you of Tanner Hall um, to some extent for, for, for Carmack from Arkansas State. Maybe that can play. Maybe he comes up. Maybe that's that pitch. Now, look, Mike's got to call that pitch. Mike doesn't trust the changeup with very many pitchers. So Mike's got to be okay with that being the way this is this operates now. This is no longer – take the quadrant and throw it as hard as you can and use the slider and that, that it's this one formula. No, no, no. You got to change speeds. You got to do some stuff. You got to locate. This is a different game a little bit. So, but Carmack's changeup makes him potentially viable. If you said he's a weekend starter next year for Ole Miss, is that going to turn a bunch of heads? Is that going to give them some top 10 ranking? No, but it is somebody who maybe can go five innings with a big changeup and get like, get outs. That's what they need right now. And Spencer has a really good profile, but it's very unproven. He was good in JUCO, a couple different JUCO stints. He, he goes to Southeast Louisiana. He hurts a rib or an oblique at one point in the middle of the season. His ERA is over five. But if you just put him on the metrics, he's a four-pitch guy. The curveball is really good. The changeup plays okay. He can throw a slider. And he's been as high as 98, 99 miles an hour this offseason. He's not, he was 92 to 95 during the year when he was banged up. He topped out at 97. And I had a couple people today tell me he's touched some eights. So you've got some velocity there. You've got some stuff. And Carmack and Spencer, while I'm sure they're getting some level of NIL, they're not breaking the bank. So what Ole Miss did so far on the mound is get potentially two arms who can help. They don't have to pay top national dollar for them, but they get some type of elite pitch that goes with them. So you're playing a little bit of money ball, but I don't hate the plan when you just need to compile as many humans who can throw strikes and pitches as possible right now in today's college baseball. And again, it goes back to it's not even just Moneyball if 98% of the other programs are playing it, right, outside of that 1% or 2%. Like, it is Moneyball to No, it's actually way above the average. I mean, yes. pl plenty of schools would like Ole Miss's problem. It's like, Moneyball I mean, at the SEC level, but again, it's just that top, top 1% of the SEC. And you mentioned the Fisher piece of it. Maybe the thing he's that guy was not an arm, and clearly they need an arm. And what you just outlined is very fascinating, and I think that – kind of brings up a question is I'm sure your favorite question you get out when you get asked about Ole Miss baseball, whether it's friends or just in public is ever going to hire a pitching coach. I'm like, I'll stop you right there, pal. There's nothing that Mike Bianco loves more than at a practice sitting with his arms like this audio only podcast, but I bet people can guess the pose in between the two mounds. And that's just his dojo never happening. But to your point, as the diversity of how, having different guys that look different and having guys that have different pitches and different things that they do well becomes ever important. That's going to fall on Mike's shoulders. And this general theme of the last six, seven years of Mike Bianca era is like, he's evolved. He's changing. He's doing all this. We wrote about it all the way back to 2019 and stuff like that. The next evolution of that is kind of how he views the pitching staff all the way down to how he calls pitches, right? He will have to change his in-game approach as well as recruiting approach as well. Yeah, look, there's no doubt. I mean, he had guys that came in with curveballs and they switched them to sliders. Had guys come in that trusted changeups that they didn't throw changeups. You know, um, Xavier Rivas was working on a changeup pretty much all year. Um, it's basically, if it's not elite, Mike doesn't necessarily like it, especially as the game goes on, you get tired. Because you know, a lot of guys use the changeup that second time through the order. Well, by then, Mike kind of goes, hey, well, you know, their velocity's down a little bit. Yeah, I can't trust the changeup, can't go there. And it's like, well, okay, but that's when that was supposed to be thrown. So, well, look, it's... It completely it, – it has to be altered a lot. I mean, he has to be a completely different pitch caller with a lot of these guys that – you know, in both ways. I mean, a guy who throws 99 needs a different way for the pitches 
can be called versus the guy that throws 92. So if they get more velocity, that counts. But then if they're using more curveballs, if they're using more changeups, that 100% has to be called different in, in a number of ways. And, you know, I I don't hate it. I don't hate what they've done. They just have to keep getting them. That's the thing. As I mean, you're getting a little bit of lottery ticket here. But I think it's better than that. I think it is. There's a reason to believe that can play at this level. Um, they both had some offers and some interest from some other teams. I mean, th- their biggest issue right now to me is shortstop. Is that they um, they go get JD Urso from University of Tampa? It's a D two school. He hit or he reached base safely in fifty six straight games at one point there for the D two National Power. His dad's a legend. Has won like five national championships at Tampa. Uh, Joe Urso there with the uh, the Spartans, but that is one hell of a transition from Division two to the SEC. Now Xavier Rivas did it well on the mound. He was from the University of Indianapolis. That was a D two school. But Urso was not the best shortstop in the country from a D2 standpoint. I mean, he was not the player of the year. Jacob Christian was that. He visited Ole Miss last week, ended up committing to San Diego. Um, shortstop is what worries you because you're counting on Urso to transition because I think he is the starting quarter, the starting shortstop if, if Cooper Pratt doesn't show. And right now, today, again, we're still two weeks away, no, a little over two weeks away, 16 days away. I would put Cooper Pratt's chances of showing it under 50%. Now, I wouldn't put it at zero. I think they've got a chance. It's a puncher's chance. But if you're telling me to predict today, I think Cooper Pratt signs with a major league team, even though my confidence level would be very, very low on that pick. Well, if that's the case, who's your backup shortstop? Who else can even play it? I mean, you're kind of looking at at nothing here. Who is it? Like, could you name someone? I'm not sure I could name them. Unless there is just a really young infielder that is slipping my mind right now. I do not – if Pratt goes pro and there's not another shortstop signed, I don't know who plays it if Urso sprains an ankle. Wasn't Tim Semay in the mix for that? Wasn't that something that they talked about? What happened there? Well, I mean, he's in the portal right now. No, I, I know. That's what I'm saying. But like, didn't you hear that? We always heard about the next shortstop when the current shortstop was there or who they thought until they signed the next stud. And Mike's never been short on that. Who do you think it is? If you had to name just like another option. I don't know. It, I mean, I'm pulling I up can't. the roster now to see if I'm for just forgetting someone, which is possible. I mean, don't I, get me wrong. I don't think you are. I can't do it. And so that's that's interesting enough in its own right. So you're They signed alive. a second baseman out of Juco, the Chisholm kid from Hines. But he's a second baseman. That has Tate Blackman vibes. I heard Tate Blackman could play shortstop, but I never actually saw it. I think there's a reason that they did. But kind of to wrap this piece of it up, the one follow-up I had about like the Mike Bianco evolving once again, you've talked to him. You know him better than anyone else that's working in media. Do you think he's capable of doing that? From um, a pitching standpoint. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, people will probably throw in something at me right now. But, yeah, for the most part, I, I believe that to be the case. Um, I, I do think that's doable. I mean, it's it's different, but you have no choice. I mean, look, Mike has been a fighter when his back is against the wall. And even though he's not getting fired at the end of the year, I don't think, his back's pretty against the wall right now. They got to get better. They got to get better in a hurry. Um Reagan Burford, I guess, technically could play shortstop, but um. oh my lord, can you imagine the message board throughout that when it's his first <laughs> error? I mean, Lay J came in as a shortstop. I'm just kind of I'm grasping here, but I mean, that's kind of what I got. That perfectly encapsulates the point. Though one of the last things I want to get to is the draft. Again, I have recency bias because if you told me to remember Ole Miss's situation in the last five drafts, I could probably maybe remember two of them. Outside of Cooper Pratt, is there anyone to keep an eye on? This feels like a very safe year 
for Ole Miss. And maybe a lot of that is from the college side where they didn't have a ton of on-field success. There's not a ton of guys who are like, man, it'd be sweet if they came back. This seems like a very Cooper proud. And other than that, there's not a whole lot of news. Maybe I'm missing something. Is there anything else in the draft we should be concerned about? Um, yeah, there's two, there's two sets of it. So the first one is the returning player section of it. Um, you would like for, I mean, again, you want the kid to get something. I'm not saying this in a negative standpoint of the kid, but strictly from an old Miss perspective, you would like Ethan Groff and Xavier Revis to have really easy decisions to come back and play baseball for you next year. Uh, Revis, I hear, probably kind of wants to sign, but would be open to coming back if it's not the right situation. You need Xavier Revis on your roster next year. Yep. You need him holding down a rotation spot. I think that's critical in the draft to see what's going on with him and if you can if you can get him back. I think they need Ethan Groff back. I think he will be better in year two. He plays a uh, a much better center field than he gets credit for. Um, better than than fr- they've had with anyone since Woodman. Yeah, he's frankly elite out there. I, I think there's a lot of things like that 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 make sense on Groff. So it's you know don't don't let anything dumb happen. You know you're going to lose the three players. You know that uh, Gonzalez, Harris. Harris, and Alderman are going to sign, but just don't let anything dumb uh, beyond that. And then there's really four guys that were some level of watching out of the out of the high school ranks. So. Josh Noth is going to sign. He is a uh, right-handed pitcher from Medford, New York. He's ranked 37th in the country, and he has he's the only incoming freshman who did not sign up for summer school to even go through the charade that they might show up on campus. So Josh Noth is going to sign. He's even getting some really early-round buzz. Bye, peace, out of here. Um, the 180 to that is I think Campbell Smithwick is going to show, the uh, catcher out of Oxford. He potentially is the starting catcher next year. I mean, Ole Miss right now has a bit of a catching issue, too, just from a experience standpoint, what this looks like. Smithwick would be a huge get to, to help in whatever capacity. Um, I think they're in good shape there. And then that leaves two guys to really watch. That leaves Cooper Pratt. I mentioned the shortstop out of uh, out of Oxford, but he plays at Mag Heights. Um, we've known about Cooper Pratt for years and years and years. Uh, his brother actually was at BYU and just got in the portal. I think he's going to Southern Miss if I saw that correctly or heard that correctly. Um, and then the other one is Xander Muth. He is the number 27 player in the country. He is uh, from Illinois. He's from Belleville. I'm assuming that is a, a Brett Huber help on, uh, on signing Xander, but the uh, right-hander six, six, two ten. he's a coin flip. Uh, he could show up to school. He's got a big number. He did at least show up for summer school to to in case he's in Oxford, be ready to go for that case. And they need an elite arm like that. They need a top thirty arm to show up. So no, it's 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 nail biting season. They're going to lose one. They're probably going to get one. And then you're looking at uh, Pratt and Muth and see what happens. Last Ole Miss piece of this, we've done this exercise for a number of years now. When we've done podcasts. This is probably a February exercise. We talk about give me two guys' numbers, pitcher and a hitter, like and tell me how Ole Miss did the next year. Is the number one pick, and I don't know who else fills out a bracket for next year when we ultimately have this conversation, Josh Mallett's on the pitching side? I think he signs. You don't think he's back? No. Off Tommy John. Wow. Okay, that threw a whole 180. You don't think he's on the Ole Miss roster next year? I think if anyone gives him a chance to play professional baseball and sign a minor league contract, he takes it. I could be wrong. I mean, you're asking me to guess, but – if I were filling out the way too early starting lineup, which is an impossibility, don't nobody ask me to do that. Um, no, I, I would not include mallets on it until he is safe from the the draft and the signing period following the draft. Why do you think that's the case? Because that's a kid who came through a second year. Obviously, this would have been his junior year. Tommy Johnson, fortunate. Is that a 
I have a sense on what this kid's situation is and what he wants to do, or is that simply a he would be at a disadvantage coming back from a future draft stop perspective? What do you what do you um, base that on? I just think he's won a national championship. He's had some success. They have done some things to make him a much better pitcher. They developed Josh Mallett really well. I think that's one Ole Miss doesn't quite get credit for the way it should. Um, I just think he wants to pitch professional. I mean, yeah, it's not about – I don't think it's about money. I don't think it's about coming back to Ole Miss. I don't think it's any necessarily about that. I think he'd be – you know, if the, if the opportunity doesn't come about, I think he's more than happy to pitch for the Rebels next year, and he likes it here. But it just seems like he definitely would be – happy to move on and do the next thing if the next thing is possible i mean it's a it's that would be a huge loss but i've kind of had it in my head that he was leaving so much that i didn't even think about that when you were talking i just kind of had him gone wow okay that's interesting uh last baseball thing we'll do before we get out of here i have one of my favorite games is how surprised are you that this average old miss player got caught up and this is in light of the news of james MacArthur getting caught up by the Kansas City Royals. Seems like a great guy. I'm very happy for him. I just looked at that and was like, whoa. And there's something about those long, lanky bodies with projectable frames that you're not that great in college. You'll always have that one night in Fayetteville in 2017 that I was a witness to. But outside of that, pretty average college pitcher. There's been a couple. Chad Smith, who's now in the uh, Athletics AAA team, but he was up with the Rockies for a short bit where you talk about an old Miss career never really working out or anything like going well. He's now a major leaguer. Through your years of covering this, who's like the most shocking guys that have gotten up with the big club, even if it's a cup of coffee where you're like, well, didn't really see that one? Uh, I mean, MacArthur would be on the list for sure. I mean, I have to – I mean, Jacob Waggispack maybe, yeah. considering how much he's hung around um, off the top of my head. But – as you said, tall, lanky, projectable bodies. And what happens, and I think this is where some people get tunnel vision, is they follow their team, and when a guy is not very good in college or he he's not an all-pro all or anything, and then he goes and he makes it up, they go, oh, my God, look what he is now, and look what Ole Miss didn't do to him. But it's a little more complicated than that in a couple different ways. One of the reasons is, you know, you can do things to guys' mechanics. They're going to take a lot of time. It's going to increase their velocity. It's going to do a lot of things for them, and maybe you do that. But it's also going to hurt their command for a while, too. Well, you've only got these guys for three years. So do you cost yourself a year with said pitcher to try to max them out down the maximize them out down the road? And no matter what school it is, that just doesn't happen much. I mean, you know, look, let's take a guy who was very successful in college, Doug McKaysey, pitching for the Guardians right now. And when he got to Cleveland, they changed some things in his delivery that has increased his velocity. His velocity is up from where it was at Ole Miss. But for a while, he was pretty wild. I mean, he was not hitting, not commanding. He was kind of throwing it everywhere. Now, he's in the minor league system. They don't care. They're just trying to let him figure it out eventually and whatever. Well, here recently, he started to, to really shove. I mean, he's he's figuring it out. He's throwing harder. He's starting to get command back. He's got the good off-speed stuff we all know about. But that exact same timeline, and that's with the Cleveland team doing it, which is maybe the best pitching management franchise in, in, in baseball, it took a minute. It took almost a year. Well, I mean, people would have thought Mike was psycho if he went, hey, we're going to just shut down Doug, fix all this stuff. I know I know he's going to suck during his sophomore year, but, hey, he's going to be hell as a junior. I mean, come <laughs> just on. Just wait till like, next that's, year. That, that was the message Mike had to sell during that period of time. Just wait. Yeah, so that's just not a thing. So it's, it's a completely different deal. But, no, you're looking for projectable frames. You're looking for guys who have the ability to bump it up into those extra mile-per-hour spots and then – what is probably a very valid criticism in some areas that I I don't know because I don't know MacArthur's situation all the way or anybody else's, 
you're probably teaching them more from an off-speed standpoint, from a different thing on, you know, pitching versus throwing and some things like that that just are, you know, have improved at the at the major league level. But no, I, I'm 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 pumped for him. I'm thrilled. Um knew James for a while while he was here in those three years. And he uh, you know, had you taken some of those rosters in those seasons and said, hey, put your list in order of who's getting up. He probably wouldn't have been at the top of any of them, but I mean, that's a, it's a hell of an accomplishment. Let's flip the switch. The antithesis of that, which might actually be the more fun game. Who are you most shocked by that never got up and had a career? And I will now flip the rules to where the guy that had the cup of coffee for a month or so, let's just say nothing more than a year. Who are you most shocked that never stuck? Cause a couple immediately came to mind, but you would know better than I did. Are there any that stick out off the top of your head without any prep, which I should have prepped you for, but Oh, well, that just never really stuck. I know a couple of these. I, I know one of these guys was up for a minute, um, but it's that Stuart Turner and Cooper oh, that Johnson was my couldn't pick. be number two catchers. And I with the Reds, the year I was there, he was kind of the last bit of his foray toiling at Louisville, and I would ask mm-hmm. my boss and guys that knew more about it, and they're like, he just can't hit at the big league level, which I was shocked by. Well, you know, what's funny about that is he wasn't supposed to hit at Ole Miss. I mean, it's kind of one of those stories that some people know, some probably don't. He came in, everybody said, look, this dude is going to wow you defensively. He's going to be amazing. He's going to be this catch-and-throw savant, and he's not going to hit his weight. And that's what's going to happen. I mean, you know, he was at LSU Eunice. We knew several guys down there. I think Brett Basham might have even been his coach down there. Brett took a year as an assistant at Eunice. And he gets here, and, I mean, damn, he hit everything. I mean, he won the Johnny Bench Award. He was sitting there hitting like 400 for part of the year. Um, and I kind of thought it would translate enough. I just thought, I mean, I knew he wasn't going to hit 380 or anything at the pro level, but I thought, hey, he can handle the bat better than I assume. So, yeah, I think for me, it's situational, but just the standpoint of Cooper nor Stewart being able to stick as that number two defensive catcher and stay in the league for a long time. I thought both had the tools defensively to do that. When you say Cooper, Cooper Johnson? Yeah. Uh-huh. Is he done? I mean, I have not heard where he's moving, at least. We'll put it that way. Yeah, I couldn't I mean, find him either. Uh, Woodman yeah. was another one. Yeah, because he felt like he had that pro frame. You thought that that would play and be physical. Yeah, that, that's a really good one. Yeah, and he had a he had an immediate kind of rapid ascent, and then he feel like he got to AAA their Buffalo team or whatever for Toronto, and was like, I'd never really heard of much, but about this. And then the last one that only comes to mind, and this is not the guy that didn't get up. Fortez having a pretty damn good early career with the Miami Marlins kid hit a ton. They kind of caught him because the Dillard thing never became a thing. And I forgot who else they had on that roster. No, it was Cooper. It was, it's not Dillard. It was was Cooper Cooper. Johnson. That's right. He's been awesome. And he hit a ton in college, but as you pointed out a couple of times through the years that I've always stuck with me, it's like, you got to be Kyle Schwarber to hit that way to kind of get and stick in the big leagues. Him getting up and staying up is awesome. He seems like a great dude. That's been a little surprising to me. What have you thought about that? Well, he's always been a professional hitter. You know, if you could change one thing and you had the genie in the bottle, uh, Nick Fortez not breaking his handmate probably would prevent the Tennessee Tech thing from happening that weekend. He was hurt. He had a handmate injury. And that might have been enough to win that final game because he came up in a couple big situations and just was hurting and didn't get it done. Um, that that becomes 5 nothing instead of one nothing. Could have changed a lot of stuff right there had Fortez. No, look, he was a, he's a hell of a hitter. And I'll give you one here as we talk about draft and, and match these together. Watch out for the Marlins because they, they're offense-based. They they just will figure out defense and don't really give a crap. Watch them for Alderman or Harris in their perspective rounds because I get that neither one of those guys are going to be great defensively. 
but they both can hit. I could see the Marlins being a landing spot for one of those Ole Miss players. Uh, on kind what of about Gonzalez? Process. I think Gonzalez is going to go somewhere between 10 and 17. So I haven't looked at all the teams in that list, but that's sort of what I've heard on him is as early as 10 and probably would be off the board by 16 to 18, somewhere in there if he, if he fell a little bit. The question then, is just what teams feel like he can stick it short. Doesn't he feel like a big league second baseman? Probably. I mean, I'm I'm hesitant to say short, even though when you look at his raw numbers, they're as good as anybody's has been here. Um, but he doesn't look on the page like Cozart to me. Um, and then two, I don't know that he hits at the major league level well enough to play third base. Okay. From a power standpoint. And then he to can wrap hit, up but to, he can hit, but just not like feeling not, not the power probably needed for third base. And then to wrap up the pod in finality, this is coming. I know you're not big into recruiting on a day-to-day basis, which I don't think anyone, I don't think, uh, I don't think that's an enviable job to cover recruiting on a daily basis. But as someone who's been moving the last couple of weeks, uh, MC's now here in Oxford, been moving boxes and houses, not really in tune with June football recruiting, not that I would be otherwise. Why is the message board melting with all these state commits? Are they actually paying for commits? I'm sure you guys have talked on the show. I have some podcasts from y'all to catch up on. What's actually happening there? Are they like, what, what's going on? I can't say for sure. So I have to use that allegedly allegedly thing, but that has been a MO for a long time. I, I think that probably is possible that there is. And, 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 I mean, it's kind of what Luke look, did. Everybody's paying to some extent. So I'm not even really criticizing when I say that. I just mean you're building momentum for two reasons. One, you try to get guys, even if you've got to find ways to influence them to get it done in the summer, um, because having them is better than not having them. Keeping them is easier than getting them later. And then number two, when you get those guys and they've got some priority around them, it makes it easy for other guys to join too. You go, hey, well, I've got Burnside and I've got Harrell and I've got these guys. Why don't you commit too? It's just the boat starts filling up. So I completely get what State's doing. And look, you're, you're never going to completely dominate this thing. State can always pick out two or three dudes and sign two or three dudes. I mean, there just isn't enough separation for that not to be the case. Uh, now, in saying that, State also has a history of not signing some of these guys when it gets to February or December or wherever. So their their, their recruitments are not over. But, yes, I do think it was a momentum play. I think they found guys that they could punch and get some early verbals from, and then you just hope and hang on and see where it goes moving forward. Recruiting guru Chase Parham. Is that your book cover and framed on the back? That's pretty nice. You got it in the center. That, That's pretty cool. Yeah, that was a Christmas gift. It is a, a framed book cover. Yeah. Published author, recruiting guru. I appreciate the time as always, my friend. And uh, I'm sure we'll chat again soon before football season because uh, in three weeks when I don't have any podcast content, I'm like, hey, yeah. what's up? Can I go to another one? I appreciate time as always. We'll talk soon. Later, bud. And that was Chase. Appreciate his time as always. We'll talk to Weldon a little bit later in the week and a couple of random interviews uh, here coming up in the next couple of weeks uh, to get us through the summer. And then it'll be SEC media days and football season will be here before you know it. Thank you as always for listening to this podcast. Really appreciate the listenership and the feedback. We'll catch you here on Friday.